I'd pay 50 cents to see you do a handstand. <laughs> I can't do a handstand. <laughs> well, then you're not getting my two bits. All right. Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and nomadic carnival folk. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is The Rotating Cast Files. Where we watch and discuss those television shows that were canceled too soon. Today we're talking about Carnival, Season 1, Episode 5, Babylon. It originally aired October 12th and Aught 3. It was written by Dawn Prestwich and Nicole Yorkin and directed by Tim Hunter. Right off the bat, I'm glad we have two women writing this episode. Oh my god. And I hope that there's more women writing the next episode. In Babylon, according to HBO.com, as Brother Justin tries to make sense of a major catastrophe, the carnival rolls into Babylon, a tapped-out silver-mining town with a luckless history and few visible inhabitants. Later, a group of restless miners arrive just in time for the evening coot show, and the latest tragedy to befall Carnival. Previously on Carnival, y'all know where that road leads? A black blizzard killed your mother. Stop it now! Open the door. Think you can hide what you are? God told me to do this. There's been a fire at the ministry. My God, where are the children? <laughs> You're laughing at the dead children? No. Oh. How dare you? I'm laughing at your voices. Laughing at dead children is my shtick. I know. I wasn't laughing at dead children. And on her forehead, a name was written. A mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That's how this episode opens. Opens with a nice Clancy Brown monologue. We open with Justin squatting and praying in the wreckage of the ministry slash orphanage. In his prayer, he mentions Babylon as we fade to a man walking down the road as the carnival approaches. Jonesy and Samson stop to talk to the guy, and it's apparent something is amiss. This is an ominous, creepy, creepy man. Oh, creepy man. You're by far the creepiest creep that ever creeped. But you certainly know how to own and run a bar. And for that, you will always be my friend. The road... <laughs> I called him the road man. <laughs> and then I forgot I called him the road man. The road man has an Irish accent, and Samson asks if he's from Babylon. He looks taken aback, but reconsiders and says yes. Which honestly, is a reasonable question. Where else would you be from on this stretch of road? With that accent, definitely Texas. Jonesy tells him there's nothing behind them but 50 miles of sand and sidewinders, which is the way the man is headed. He asks if they're a carnival, and when they confirm, he says that they've been waiting for them for a while. Samson asks, oh yeah, how's that? But Roadman just smiles and walks off. Welcome to Babylon. We should not stop here, even for a moment. <laughs> the first person you meet is this ominous and creepy? Ugh. Yeah. The carnival arrives in Babylon, and it's clear that no one is happy about being there. Dorme says Rita Sue says Babylon is cursed. Ruthie says it's just a place. Gecko counters with, quote, just a place no other carnival will play, unquote. They can both be right. One of them is not right. <laughs> well, it is a place. Immediately, Samson goes to confront management about why they're there. He He's... demands management tell him something that he can share with the crew, but management is silent. Uh, he's just talking to an empty cubbyhole. 
And he throws his hat on the floor. He does another half Ben Hawkins impression. It's just says, damn it. Jonesy and his crew are setting up. Gecko is begging to stop by El Paso, which isn't going to happen, apparently. Apparently it's also as bad as Babylon. I guess. Said someone. Someone was like, uh, if this place isn't bad enough, like El Paso's worse. There's, spoiler alert, literally no way El Paso is worse. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he's talking about the salsa. I don't know. I don't think that's where Gecko wants to go, though. The crew is telling Jonesy they're going to wire to another show for work, and Jonesy calls them some 1930s name that showcases how little he cares. (laughs) It'd be a shame to lose you three quiver dicks. (laughs) Yes. What? (laughs) Gonna start working that in my lexicon. Good luck. Ben's working, but sees Loads' trailer and beelines it past Jonesy. Like he just realized that it still exists. Right, yeah. I wrote, it's like he was pulled to it. Oh yeah, Loads is a guy. (laughs) Loads is shaking in his bed. Oh, poor Loads has the DTs. They call it the Clanks. It's not the Clanks. It would be awful. I've never had the DTs. You know, alcohol withdrawal is the only withdrawal that can kill you. Mm -hmm. That's wild. He probably does feel like he's dying. because it's possible that he is. Because he might be dying. Yeah, it's really nasty. So Ben and Loads jabber a bit. And Ben's like, you know what? You know what I've figured out, sir? What is it, 18-year-old? Sir, man, you guy, I figured out. Ernst. You don't know. Half as much as you pretend to know. And Loads is like, no shit. Wow. Wow. You came all the way here to say that out loud, child. He actually says, after laughing at Ben, you have an infallible, if irritating, gift for stating the obvious. And... Half is oh so much better than nothing at all. Yes, it's so good. (laughs) Ben thought he was going to just be the big man in this situation, and he just got swept (laughs) on his ass in no time. Yes, but these two work a lot better in this scene than they did in the last episode. Which is weird. I think it's because Ben is doing something other than just he's not being passive. Ben is not being passive, so they have more of an interaction. Yeah, there's something to interact with. Yeah. So they definitely worked better here. That is true. It's unfortunate that they were together for an entire episode that didn't work together. <laughs> right. But here we are. Ruthie breaks it up by telling Ben to go back to work. And he's like, okay. Then he has to mm-hmm. squeeze past her. I know. <laughs> She's like, I'm not moving. No, I am in charge here. <laughs> You are being reprimanded. Get out. (laughs) It's great. So Ben leaves. And Ruthie calls loads on his bullshit. Says, quit being a quiver dick. (laughs) She actually says, if he keeps messing with Ben, quote, I will tear your pecker off like a piece of French bread, unquote. (laughs) To which he laughed at that too. (laughs) He did. He was like, this is the best way to be sick in bed. Yeah. Pretty great. Not so great is what's going on in Sophie and Apollonia's trailer. Sophie is arguing with Apollonia over her recent sexual encounter during the dust storm. Oh, poor Sophie is lying to herself. 
Sophie says she liked it. Uh-huh. Liked the way he held her. <laughs> Which, I saw that scene. <laughs> Did not occur. I remember that. No. I remember crying. I was so upset. I'm... My stomach hurts just thinking about it again. So awful. Apollonio warns or threatens or suggests she might be pregnant. Sophie says he didn't knock her up because that only happens in dime novels. Wouldn't it be great if that were true? I'm not even sure what that meant. Like, is that supposed to be romantic? That she would get knocked up and then he would marry her even though he's already married or something? I don't... I don't know what the point of that statement was. No, I don't think it has anything to do with romance. I think she's like, don't worry about it. That stuff doesn't happen in real life. But of course, now she's worried that she may be pregnant. (laughs) Fortunately, when Sophie leaves the trailer, she sees the Dreyfus women practicing their routine. They're also bickering because everyone is on edge and that's what you do with families. Also fortunate for Sophie... As she approaches, Dora Mae storms off, and Rita Sue is distracted by Stumpy hanging a torn banner. So only Libby is remaining. It's obvious these two don't spend much time together when Sophie decides to sit and stay for a cigarette. Because <laughs> Libby's just say she says, and they say that I'm the mean one, or she's the nice one. And then Sophie sits down, and the way Libby looks at her is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sophie asks Libby how you can tell if you're pregnant, which leads to the discovery that no one knows. But at least Libby tells Sophie to require a rubber next time. She says, was he wearing anything? Well, he kept his socks on. He kept his everything on. I also remember that. He kept his underwear all the way up, elastic at his waist, remember? Yes. He kept everything on. Penis through the little slot. Through the pee hole. (laughs) Through the fly. You were like, this is appalling. And I'm like, yeah. Everything about it was appalling. All of it. Libby tells her that you can't get pregnant your first time, and that's just science. No, what? (laughs) That's science. Like I said, no one knows. (laughs) Wow. Which actually, this whole conversation makes me wonder if Sophie knows what a rubber is. Does Sophie understand what she's referring to? Absolutely not. That's what I was thinking. It would be... Weird if she just like pulled one out of her bra or whatever right now because they're not the small ones that we know in the little containers. They're like sheaths <laughs> back in the day. But it would be nice if at some point Libby shows her what a rubber actually is. It would be. So that's, it would be helpful. So that Sophie has any idea. Yes. It doesn't happen now. But, you know, at least they get to be friendly. And what a beautiful friendship it will be. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> Dora Mae shocks the hell out of Ben while he's shaving. Ben is doing the worst shaving job that has ever occurred on this planet. He's running the razor over his face. I can see it. It's wiping away the shaving cream. Yep. But not the hair. All of the hair stays on his face. Mm -hmm. It's insane. But it is the single greatest way to open a conversation of all time. One of my titties is way bigger than the other. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. And to his credit, Ben doesn't react like that. (laughs) He actually tries to have a real conversation with her. It's fun because Dorme is definitely picking on him and he's trying his best not to react. (laughs) Yeah. 
But then she she goes up to him and says, you look like you'd be a real nice kisser. And then closes her eyes and puckers her lips. And he's like, I have to leave now. And she's so unbothered by it. Oh, she it. thinks it's hilarious. Oh. It's so fun. But he really does. He asks her a question about herself. Do you really like that? Yeah. All those men grabbing at you and stuff. The first part of the sentence sounds a little aggressive, but then he softens a little bit and is like, like, you're okay with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm giving him credit. He's, right. try- he's trying to have a conversation with her. He's trying. It's not a great conversation. <laughs> but it started with one of my titties. Is <laughs> That's true. So <laughs> where can you really go from there? I, I guess don't... you go to a bitch, you're a really good kisser. <laughs> amazing it was amazing it is so obvious that he is the most fun person to have fun with still (laughs) to this day however many weeks this has been that they've been doing this and i was writing this and i said it's fun because he's the new guy and he's also a prude and then i was like is prude a bad word it's like is that a nasty thing to call somebody so then i actually just looked up synonyms for the word prude and i they were hilarious so i decided i'm gonna share them with you guys awesome so there's puritan which is not as fun prig prig killjoy moral zealot wow (laughs) a moralist Mrs. Grundy. What? What? I don't know. Solomon Grundy's wife? Solomon Grundy. Born on a Monday. Old maid. School marm. Pietist. Victorian. These are all synonyms from the dictionary. Wow. That are... This is wild. Priggish person. Blue nose. Goody goody. Goody two shoes. Holy Joe. Or Holy Willy or Miss Prim. (laughs) Okay. So there's a lot of words you can use instead of prude if you're like, that doesn't feel like a good word to use. I like Holy Joe. You can now use any of those other ones. (laughs) Jonesy is still furious with Samson, but they haven't discussed it. Even on that 50 miles of of sand and sidewinders. Sand and sidewinders. But Jonesy tells Samson he needs to do something now or people will start leaving. So, in an effort to prevent many of the Rousties from deserting, Samson takes them out on the town for the night. Unfortunately, what that means is one nearly abandoned bar with the man from the road as bartender. Roadman. In the mine where they keep all the aliens and X-Files. What? If you look at the mine behind the town, it looks like the one where they shot the scenes in X-Files. When Samson says... Looks like you didn't make it out of town. He cryptically responds, never Never do. do. Ah. And Samson kind of looks at him, makes a a weird face like, what an interesting I do not know what to make of you, man. And what you should make is get out of town right now. Ominous creepy men being ominous and creepy and the only people you've run into. I hate it. I was unsettled this entire episode. I was just like, this is an unsafe town. I feel unsafe on my couch by myself right now. This whole thing is making me feel unsafe. And you know what? I'm right. You are. (laughs) Rather than go to the bar, Sophie and Libby dress up for the night and go to the movies. They approach the theater, but it appears closed. Sophie, reluctant to turn back yet, suggests that they may be early. Because, again, there's no one around. Inside, they find a small counter with candy. As Sophie reaches for a few bars, another creepy man appears from around the corner and catches them. 
Levy distracts him so Sophie can steal some candy. And he confirms they're with the carnival before putting on a silent movie. He asks if they're the kind of dancers to get naked. And she says, you think I'm the kind of dancer that takes off my brassiere and shows my titties? Yeah. And at this point, they've said the word titties so many times in this episode that the word has no meaning to me anymore. Okay. Titties. <laughs> As the movie plays, the two talk about sex with the man creepily watching from the control room. And Libby's playing the piano. Yep. And Carla Gallo is doing a fantastic job of not pressing down any of the keys. <laughs> Good job. And I mean that as a compliment. She's like, if I push any of these, we're going to have to start over because <laughs> yeah. it's going to make a sound. So here I am not pressing the keys. It took me a second to look and I was I was eagle-eyed. I was directly looking at those keys. And it took a brand new camera angle for me to verify that she was not pressing down the keys all right she did a great job turns out that the silent movie that they are watching is one that libby saw already or sophie one of them has already seen i think <coughs> libby because i don't think sophie gets out much back at the bar there's actually music now so everyone is dancing dorme is flirting with the bartender slash road man who says the town doesn't come in here and she's like what He's like, he goes, it's better they, if they don't. Yes. He said, it's better if they don't, and they don't drink much. Yeah. Creepy guy has a crush. Yes. And Nick Stahl's drunk acting, very good. He's very good at it. <laughs> really, really good job. Everyone is dancing and having a good time. Libby and Sophie arrive after the movie to join in, because silent movies are like 35 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> Ben is getting annihilated at a table by himself until Ruthie asks if he wants to dance. And Jonesy is also sitting alone, watching everything. The creepy-as-fuck townsmen with lust in their eyes are being goddamn creeps. Like, just looking through the windows They're standing all. outside with their lanterns and boners, peering in the window. Just knocking their boners into their lanterns. Yep. Which is dangerous. Because these are gas. You can start fires. Really? Honestly, I wish they caught themselves on fire instead of anything else happening. <laughs> Probably oil, not gas. Whatever. Oil's worse. As the night carries on and slow dancing starts, Libby and Sophie are still dancing. Jonesy asks to cut in. He says, do you want to dance? And Sophie says, I am dancing. And I was like, take the hint, Jonesy. And Libby just makes that face that you would make. Be like, oh, Libby's being the best friend because she knows the cues. She... Gets that there's weird tension. She makes eye contact with Sophie and then she turns Sophie's back into <laughs> Jonesy as in, we are not allowing you to cut in. You are out of this circle, which is perfect. Jonesy wanders to the bathroom and Ben stumbles in. I don't think it's the bathroom. I think it's the wall outside. That would make sense. I was like, I don't know. In my In my head, I was like, they're peeing into a trough because that's what they have in men's places i haven't been to a pee trough in decades at this point mm. i think probably since one of the times i went to the indy 500 do you guys just stand around and look at each other's dicks i don't i stand around looking like up and away and try really hard not to look at anybody's dicks but they're just all out there in everybody's all little hands we don't have anything like that. It's the weirdest thing to think about. It really is. I think that's why it doesn't exist anymore. Because everybody hated it. Someone didn't. 
<laughs> I, there's a Sam Kennison bit about it. Someone was like, you know what would what we should do? We should install one drain. That's it. One drain in this whole stadium. I think in the Sam Kennison bit, it ends with a guy at the end of the drain. <laughs> Ew. Gross. I was, ugh. Yuck. Uh, Jonesy says something about Ben not being able to hold his liquor. And Ben goes, you can go to hell. And Jonesy says, where do you think we are, farm boy? And I was like, yeah, Ben. Where do you think you are? Yeah, Ben. Yeah, Ben. Fucking Ben. Ben is my least favorite character. God damn it. <laughs> oh, ben stumbles off alone into the dark. No one sees him again. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Show over. Uh, tensions are still high in the morning. No one seems to notice Ben's absence, except for Ruthie. Aw. When Lodes learns of it, he employs Lila to take him on an undisclosed errand. He wants to borrow her eyes. First, he says, we have business to attend to. Yep. And then a little bit later, we cut to him getting a haircut. So apparently a haircut was the business. I guess. It seems like a weird detour. <laughs> odd. Very odd. <laughs> But either way, he ends up having Lila walk him up a hill <laughs> where no one sees loads again. <laughs> <laughs> He's also gone. Cut to Sophie, Libby, and Dora May at the breakfast table. We learn Libby fell off the roof. Is that a thing? Is that a thing people say? She said it. I've fallen off the roof. <laughs> when she said that, I was like, when did this happen? <laughs> but it means she's menstruating. So the blow off is all Dora May's tonight. And Dora May says... That's fine. I get better tips than you anyway. And then throws her baked beans on the ground so the dogs can come eat it. Yeah. It's just a very strange scene. <laughs> but mainly it was just to have Dora be able to get up and walk off so we have Libby and Sophie alone again. Libby asks if she can make up Sophie. And so she's pretending to draw eyeliner under one of her eyes. But then Apollonia starts calling to Sophie. And Libby says... She's in your head right now. And Sophie says, yeah, and she doesn't like you. <laughs> so now we know that at least some members of the rest of this carnival know that there's weird magic happening. I thought everybody knew. Possibly, probably, but we don't know that everybody knows. I mean, maybe not the Rousties and the, the people putting up the tents. They probably Yeah, we're, we're learning it little by little. Who knows what? Yeah. Now back to Ben. No one else sees him except for us. We see him. But nobody in the carnival ever sees him again. <laughs> <laughs> no. Poor Ben. Not the first person to get completely shithoused and wake up in a strange place. Except, I don't know the number of people who have woken up in the same place that Ben has. Because, we, how would we know that? We would never know. Uh, it's true. Because nobody would ever see them again. Nope. He wakes up in apparent total darkness. And I think he just says, hey, for about four minutes straight. Hey. Hey. He does say, god damn it. Does he? <laughs> At least once. He flicks his Zippo to discover that he's in an abandoned and seemingly sealed off mine. Somewhere in the Babylon mine. It's reminiscent of Justin's vision trip he played on Iris last episode. Oh, okay. I was like, what is this note? <laughs> I watched the two back to back. So... In that vision trip that he was 
that Justin was walking Iris through, oh. everything got really dark, and he's talking about being in the mine and being stuck in the mine shaft. Nine year olds, old men by nine, yeah. And soft hands, hard rock. Uh huh. Okay. Night falls at some point. Meanwhile, Lode sits alone outside in the wilderness at night, and he may or may not be able to hear Ben screaming for help. So Ben has been gone a full day. Yes. The carnival opens for evening business. At first, there's no one. Samson says to Jonesy, give it time. Jonesy makes a snide remark about management, which Samson responds with, what kind of spider crawled up your ass? Oh, I'm so glad Samson has finally had enough of Jonesy's shit. He needed to say something. He did, but he also could have tried to figure out what was going on. He did, just now. He wants to know what kind of spider it was. <laughs> Jonesy is then distracted. He was about to respond, but he doesn't because we hear a horse or horses. And when they look up, they see lanterns in the distance. A whole bunch of ominous, creepy townsfolk. They can just see the lanterns first. This is bad. The horses are the only things making noise. It's very creepy. So the there are 75 to 100 silent, dirty men. <laughs> Descending on this carnival. It's a lot. It's a lot of guys. And this is when you know it's too late for you to go anywhere. Yep. You should have left already. Yep. Name one example when it wouldn't be creepy as fuck for 75 to 100 men to just show up. <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's 100% scary. <laughs> That's terrifying. As the crowd descends on the carnival, Jonesy kind of goes like, he doesn't say anything, but his eyes get real big and he kind of slinks off. He's like, I gotta go to work. I gotta get the away from this. And Samson is fully trying to meld into the signpost. Yes. Because he is freaked out. He's completely unnerved. As he walks around, it's not getting any better. There's some sound. At first, I wasn't sure if the only people talking were the Barkers, but there are some townsfolk, some miners that are talking. Yeah. But it's not a lot. It's not the chatter that you would expect at a carnival full of people. Right. You would expect them to be talking to each other. You would expect them to be exclaiming about things. You would expect there to be some interaction between the Barkers and the people. And there's barely anything. So Samson's walking around and just getting more and more unsettled. He goes to Stumpy and says, cancel the blow off. No blow off tonight. Something is wrong. After Stumpy's... Parker speech in which he calls Libby and Orme mamzels. Yes. Which was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I liked. And he said that from the Cherry Valley to the Grand Tetons, all hell's going to break loose, which yep. I thought was a wonderful line as well. <laughs> there is a full house. So Stumpy is trying to, Stumpy knows the blow off shouldn't happen because he's trying to follow the rules that Samson has put in place. However, he also wants to do the show because it will give them more money. It's 50 more cents to see that part of the show, which would be a lot of money. Yeah. But he does listen to Samson and he tells the women they're not doing it that night. Jonesy is out at the Ferris wheel when two filthy men get in his cart and he asks for their tickets. When they don't give them up and the rest of the folks are hollering to get started, Jonesy refuses to actually lock them in and instead holds the accelerator to go as fast as it will go, which would be hilarious 
but I didn't fully expect this thing to fall apart at some point. Oh, Colossus is a sturdy girl because carnival machinery is all gals. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. She can hold together. Oh my gosh. So we've got, we've now got these miners on this Ferris wheel being whipped around relentlessly. Just screaming. Yes. Let me off! Yeah. Let one, me off or I'm going to beat you up. Yeah, and I'm one, like, all right. One guy goes, you want a piece of me? <laughs> what? <laughs> Good luck. Sophie is reading the tarot cards for her mother. The miner wants to know when he'll hit high dirt because he's tired of digging in this dirt. Scrabble. Scrabble. I knew. I was like, what is the word he used? Sophie does the thing where she tells him the cards are unclear rather than whatever Apollonia actually said, which was probably he's fucked. So I have another idea of what it might have been. Oh, what's that? We'll find out next episode. Oh, okay. I think Apollonia knows and is saying. So the miner gets up to leave, but Apollonia has Sophie ask the miner one more question. She wants to know if he knows the name Scudder. The miner does, and relates that Scudder worked the mine several years ago, and that Scudder had killed Carl Buttridge with a pickaxe. And then he leaves. Apollonia declines to explain the incident or its relevance to her daughter. And Sophie says, you're just full of secrets. So Sophie doesn't know who Scudder is. Right. So until Ben showed up, probably nobody's talking about Scudder. And then all of a sudden, he is all of the talk. Yeah but only among a certain section of people. Yes, the people who have been there the longest. Right. Yep. It's very interesting. Yep. Down in the mine shaft, Ben has stumbled across a pickaxe, just as Scudder, dressed as a miner, comes round the corner, looking very much alive and very much like he's been down there for a while. <laughs> very sweaty. Scudder is silent. Ben chases him, finally getting him to stop when he yells, I know who you are! <laughs> But do you know what that means? And then there's no more dialogue. So it's like, honestly, I think Ben doesn't. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> In light of Ben's silence, Scudder sets off down the tunnel. Ben can't keep up and soon collapses when he finds the lifeless body of Carl Buttridge, pickaxe still lodged in his chest. R.I.P. to that guy. Looking real fine for being dead in that mine for, for years. several years. Mm-hmm. Back in the Cooch show, Rita Sue is unconvinced about Samson's warning. She says they've worked tougher crowds and tells Stumpy to go tell Rita May, I mean, not Rita May, Dora May to get ready. Stumpy calls for the men and lets them know that there will be a, an extra special show, but because it requires so much skill, it will be 50 more cents to see the final show. Dora May is going to do the blow off. Both the Babylon barkeeper and the local projectionist are in the crowd, amongst all of the other people. We hover on Stumpy as he watches the crowd go through the second curtain. He looks uncertain, but it's tough to say whether this is because he believes Samson, or because he's watching for Samson so they don't get caught before they can get paid. Oh, I see. I thought it was because he believes Samson. Uncertain. Mm. Because it is a lot of extra money. It is a lot of extra money. It's, it's got to be like 50 dudes that go in there. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's and like 20, 25 dollars. When uh, back at the theater, Libby said for a nickel you get the show. So is it a nickel to get into the front part of the show and 50 cents to get into the back part of the show? I guess. You got to think it's more than a nickel though. I know, but that's what she said. Yeah, so we that don't is what she said. We don't know. It's definitely a boon if that's get, the difference. Yeah. And yeah, if you can get a double, even if it's 50 cents at the front, if you can get double payment, oh my gosh. Mhm. Mm 
Not a single man didn't go back there. Right. Back at the Ferris wheel, Jonesy is um, getting just annihilated himself. He's super drunk. While those original miners are still flying around and around, he's not as worried about getting tickets no. on his on his ride. He's going to make sure they get their tickets worth. Yeah. This is the part where someone <laughs> yells, you want to fight, yeah. <laughs> which is so ridiculous. But the miners on the ground end up beating the snot out of Jonesy as another person stops the wheel. Samson arrives and breaks up the fight, then tells Jonesy to leave since they had a deal. The deal was that he wasn't supposed to drink on the job, but obviously it was fine that he drank off the job because they were literally at the bar last night together. True. But is this episode the first time we've ever seen Jonesy drink at all? I think so. I do too. So I'm wondering if Jonesy was a complete rummy before he got hired at the carnival and not drinking was the deal. You can. That's what I was thinking too. And then I was like, but they, they were drinking last night. But when he said two glasses and a bottle of your finest, that threw Samson. It did. And you're right. It might not have been because I, I said something like, in this town, the finest is going to be the same thing as the bottom <laughs> shelf. It's all going to be the same. But if it was the first time that Jonesy was drinking... In years? In years. That could be what threw him. That really could. You know what? These people need to learn how to communicate better. Where's the carnival therapist that you hired? Right? A couple episodes ago. Right? Now... As far as the liquor goes, I did see a bottle of Four Roses up on the shelf. What does that mean? That is good whiskey. Mm. I don't know if it existed in the 1930s, though. <laughs> I don't know anything about it, because I didn't even know it was whiskey. Jonesy stumbles off into the dark, reminiscent of Ben last night. <laughs> he's getting up in the same place, but he's not careful. <gasps> oh no, we never see Jonesy again! Dora May is in the middle of her blow-off. Stumpy and Rita Sue standing by. A full-blown handstand. She does an entire handstand, and then she does the splits. And this is where I go, holy shit, Stompy wasn't lying. This dance does take a lot of skill. Yes. Well worth it. Well worth the 50 cents. Amazing. So I'm also trying to learn handstands, and it is freaking hard. <laughs> and my whole body's sore. And then I see this episode, and I'm like, shit. I'd pay 50 cents to see you do a handstand. <laughs> can't do a handstand. <laughs> well, then you're not getting my two bits. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm still working on it. But damn. As she lands out of her handstand, the miners rush the stage, grabbing her and dragging her toward them. She's terrified because this would be fucking the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm -hmm. This is horrifying. They are dragging her toward them. She calls out daddy and Stumpy rushes to help her and she runs off backstage as the tent collapses. During all of this, Dora May is cut on her leg on the way out. Next, we see her outside the tent. She's wearing a robe and just hyperventilating because this was traumatic. That was probably one of the scariest things that's happened while she's performed. Oh, absolutely. And I can't read Rita Sue here. I can't either. So what I think is happening is that as Rita Sue is standing by, she's feeling really guilty for calling this mm -hmm. because... There's a part of me that believes something similar to this has happened to Rita Sue. I'm going to guess multiple times. Yes, but it's never happened to this extent to her daughter. To her kids, yeah. And she's feeling guilty. But she's also not... Sh there's She's probably having a lot of internal shit happening because she's... Here's my read. She's reliving this stuff happening to her uh -huh. and kicking herself... 
for allowing it to happen to her daughters. I think the way that she and Stumpy were both in there during uh-huh. this show was their answer to making sure that their daughters are still safe. And it's this still happened. That's my read. I think that's a good read. I think there's an extra layer on it just because a couple of looks that Redusu gives. I think she's also hoping that this doesn't stop Dorme from dancing. That might be it too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very complicated because if this is how you make your family money. Uh huh. I think there's a lot going on. I think it's a lot. Yeah. Stumpy comes out and brings Dorme ointment to keep it from getting pussy. Which is a very hard word to write down. <laughs> is there a dash in there? Yep. Okay. <laughs> I wrote it and I was like, whoa. <laughs> Do you spell this a different way? Dash. <laughs> Dorme thanks him. And Rita Sue appears to be fighting grief, guilt, and anger, but remaining silent. Dorme looks up toward the camera like she's looking towards someone just as Rita Sue slips around the side of the tent after Stumpy, leaving her alone. Did Uh, you notice the shot? I did not, but that explains some things. Yep. Back to Ben, because a lot is happening, so we must have a break. We've decided (laughs) Ben is the least interesting. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is what I wrote in my notes. Um, He's still in the cave. Ben has relit his Zippo, or... It's still lit, whatever. And he relit it. It must have gone out. And discovered a series of letters carved in the wooden beams supporting the mine. It's A-V-A-T-A-R-A-V-A-T-A-R-A-V-A-T-A-R, blah, blah, blah. He writes T-A-R-A-V-A-T-A-R-A onto his arm in charcoal. He does not understand. But how could he? Because this is early viral marketing for James Cameron's Avatar 4. And we will never... Get away from it. Never. Avatar is just going to be in it's everybody's lives. It's been around lives. since the beginning, and it will be around at the end. And I will never see it. Me neither. And I will never care. Ben takes Buttridge's headlamp. That's the guy who's dead with the pickaxe in his chest. Lights it and sets off in search of Scudder. Get ready, guys. It's about to get content warnings. <laughs> it's, this is all about to get just the worst. So let's see if I can make it to the end. Jonesy, staggering up the hillside outside of the carnival, comes across a tree, and we can see legs dangling from it. It's Dorme, you can tell, because you can see her shoes with the little heel, her little black shoes with the little heel, and the white ankle socks. Because I was like, these are, this is an adorable look. Yeah, and her legs are bleeding. Yes. You can see blood from her cut, if not additional trauma, has run all the way down her legs to her socks. Jonesy pauses. Which I am not going to do. I'm going to get through this real fast. <laughs> Slowly looking up to her face, he vomits. Next, we see him stumbling through the carnival, carrying Dorame. Ruthie sees him and tells him to lay her down over here while laying out her jacket prone to put her on. She also tells Gabriel to go get Samson. Rita Sue notices and runs over, screaming, <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> oh my God. Here, you read my note. Rita Sue notices and runs over, screaming only the screams of someone experiencing a part of themselves actually dying. Dorme's throat was cut. I think that might be the noose cutting into her neck. Yeah. Uh, And the word harlot was carved onto her forehead. We hear Brother Justin saying over the scene, and on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. And at this Brother Justin monologue, I finally realized that there was no Brother Justin Mm -mm. 
in this episode, and I didn't realize it until the very end. That's how compelling everything that happened was. Yeah. Holy shit. When you're in it, this episode doesn't feel like there's much going on. It kind of feels real slow. But it was riveting to the point where you didn't miss Clancy Brown. I know. He only bookends this episode. How well done does an episode of television have to be that you didn't notice Clancy Brown's absence? Right. Yeah. Crazy. That's it. He's in it for 30 seconds of voiceover. His face is in it for three seconds or something. Incredibly well done. Yeah. Good job, everybody. Kudos. Kudos all around. Holy crap. Everybody okay? No. All right. (laughs) Well... In order to get us okay, do you think that maybe everybody should listen to some sort of emo song? Yes, I have a great one with a great story. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. The song is by a group called The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. Oh my god. So the song is titled January 10th, 2014. And the notes about this song are from Emma Garland. Championing... Female vigilantism in a world rife with male violence. January 10th, 2014 is a rogue entry to the emo canon centered on women, but not from the vantage point of the male gaze. It brings together two stories. The first is the true story of Diana, hunter of bus drivers, who murdered two late night shuttle bus drivers in response to decades of sexual violence on the women of Juarez, Mexico, due to the indifference of police. The second is Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt, a protective force associated with, among other things, wild animals, woodland, the underworld, fertility, and childbirth. It's an ambitious concept, but in its own idealistic way, rewrites a common narrative, both within emo and the world at large, that seeks to confine women to one of two categories, victim or evil. Oh, By contrast, January 10th, 2014 holds women up as beacons of bravery and strength and vigilante action as worthy of thanks. While it feels fairly deflating that the examples chosen are ones of abject desperation and myth, it works within the utopian framework of the song, whose soaring post-rock-influenced landscape communicates its vision better from within clouds. However, what really elevates January 10th, 2014 are the dueling vocals and the passing of the most affecting lines, Are You Afraid of Me Now? to keyboardist Katie Shanholzer Dvorak, which brings a much-needed sense of agency to a genre that often deprives women of it, whether it means to or not. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a great song. Yeah. For this episode. Yes, I did too. I was like, this feels right. (laughs) This feels like the right choice. So go listen to January 10th, 2014 by The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die or watch this episode and cry a lot. Yeah. Or both. And brace yourself for the next episode. Oh God, I don't know how I'm going to do the next episode. I'll write all the notes and then you can read it. Okay. (laughs) Just be a monologue by me. I'll be reading all of your notes and then trying to make my jokes in response to myself. (laughs) The Rotating Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed, edited by Dave Reed. Thanks for being here. And if you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. Tell us that we are fighting the righteous battle in podcasting good and evil. 
That old time religion. That old time podcast religion. Or even easier, tell people about us. It really helps us out. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Cast Files. We also auto post to YouTube if that's your streaming service of choice, or if you like closed captions. And finally, email us at therotatingcastfiles at gmail.com. 